For those of you who were here last week, we uh, had a text of Scripture from the very first chapter of the Gospel of John, and now today our Scripture comes from the very last chapter of the Gospel of John, the 21st chapter. This is a post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to his disciples. I invite you to listen for God's Word. Now, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together were Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we'll go with you. So they went out, they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked. He jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging their net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, only about a hundred yards off. Now when they'd gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with some fish on it and bread, and Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Then he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious Lord, we have come today to hear a word from you. So speak to us now. And quiet within us any voice but your own. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Last week, I wrote an article for the San Marino Tribune about the deadline for college applications. The deadline is November the 1st for 
applications for early decision or early action or early restricted action. And though November 1st is the deadline for college applications, it also happens to be All Saints Day. So I compared and contrasted the virtues of college applicants with the virtues of the saints of the church. Now, there's no doubt that some of those student applicants are hoping for a miracle or two. And it's interesting because I received more feedback about that article than I have for any other article I've written for the Tribune. We prepare students to be successful in careers, and we also hope that along the way they'll develop those virtues that are so important in life, like honesty, courage, empathy, compassion. Our text this morning is a text about how one of the early saints of the church, St. Peter, deepened those very virtues in an encounter with Jesus Christ. Several years ago, I had the privilege of serving on a committee for the Fund for Theological Education. It awards fellowships to those who are preparing for ministry. These ministry fellowships are awarded to the most promising students in seminaries and divinity schools throughout the United States and Canada. So the challenge facing the committee was figuring out amongst the applicants who were the most promising. Everyone's opinion on the committee was slightly different. This story in the 21st chapter of John is this richly textured narrative about the choice of Peter as the leader of the early church, the most promising. Strange that he's chosen. I'm not sure any pastoral nominating committee would see Peter as the best candidate for the job. So college applications usually include some kind of a question like this one. In order for the admissions staff of our college to get to know you, the applicant, better, we ask that you answer the following question. Are there any significant experiences you've had or accomplishments that you've realized that have helped define you as a person. This story in John's Gospel is in some ways an answer to that question for the Apostle Peter and for the early believers. And it's really kind of strange that the qualification for leadership in the church has little to do with padding a resume. In fact, the church remembers not Peter's qualifications. The church remembers how his disqualification didn't become what defined him. He's a fallen follower of Jesus. But he has a new awakening. He has a rehabilitation and a restoration. Following the death of Jesus, there were stories beginning to circulate about this resurrected Lord who kept appearing to his followers. Peter and all of the disciples are scattered. They don't know what to do next, so they return to what they know best, which is fishing. 
called earlier in the gospel to be fishers of people. They return now at the end of the gospel to what they know, fishing. And they find themselves on a sea of uncertainty returning where they began. Not knowing what to do. They're fishing. They're professionals at this, but they're doing it poorly. After a night of fishing, they come up empty. They're experiencing the very truth that Jesus was teaching them in the last discourse of John's gospel just a few chapters earlier when he said to them, I am the vine and you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. And nothing is precisely what these disciples are coming up with. Disheartened disciples on a fruitless fishing expedition. I think that's a description of more than a few of us who try to follow Jesus. I think it's a pretty good description of more than a few congregations. Aimless activity undertaken in desperation and coming up empty. I know what that feels like, don't you? We somehow have this remarkable capacity to incapacitate ourselves. We live our lives filled with distractions. We think as long as we can keep busy, we won't have to address those inner longings, that sense of unfulfilled living within that gnaws at us. So we purchase things and we own things that begin to own us. We spend our time taking care of things rather than taking care of people. Some years ago, Neil Postman wrote a book entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he chronicles just how Americans have an obsession, an insatiable appetite for entertainment. We fill our lives with distractions that keep us from attending to any of the things of God. And by doing so, we incapacitate ourselves. We find ourselves becoming passive observers of life rather than active participants. Sleepless nights of anxious aimlessness. I've known more than my share. One lesson of the early disciples is simply that branches won't produce their own nourishment. They can't. Branches need to be connected to the vine, to the source, to the life-giving provider of nourishment and meaning. That's why the Bible talks about the fact that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So if we find ourselves with our lives feeling empty, maybe we just need to renew the kind of connection to the source of life itself. Elsewhere, in the epistles of John, John writes, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live 
through him. You know, there's a story told of an Eastern scholar who approached his master and asked the question, Master, what can we do to bring God closer to us? Well, what can you do to make the sun rise, replied the master. Frustrated and confused, the scholar pressed further, well, then what's the point of all of this? All this instruction you give to us, why do we discipline ourselves with prayer and fasting? The master replied, so you'll be awake when the sun rises. That morning on the Sea of Tiberias, as the sun was rising, Peter awakens to an experience with the resurrected Lord that came to define him. It was not his denial of Jesus that horrible night in the garden that defined him. Outside was that kangaroo court set up to convict Jesus, and three times Peter denied that he had anything to do with him. But that's not the most important piece of history. Because Peter wasn't defined by his past, but by his future. Because he was forgiven. He thought he had blown it irretrievably. Peter must have believed that he had disqualified himself because of his denial. He cut and he run at the moment that Jesus needed him the most. What would this Lord think of him now? What place could there be for him amongst the followers who remained faithful? Many can relate to Peter's experience, feeling somehow like their past has disqualified them. That their lives are forever defined by some dumb, stupid, painful event that if others knew about, they would recoil in disgust. For Peter, Christ was not as tangibly present as he had been before the crucifixion, but he wasn't absent from his life either. And as the sun was about to rise, Jesus asks Peter this simple question. Do you love me? Now here's a strange reversal in the story. Following Peter's denial, don't you think that the question should be asked the other way around? That Peter should be asking Jesus, do you still love me? Or have I so disqualified myself, so squandered your goodness and grace, that I am forever banished and no longer welcomed into your presence? So even in this story, in this story, there's really no question of God's love for Peter. It's not God's love that's in question. It's our ability to respond to God's love. It's the same thing with baptism. It's not God's love that's in question at a baptism. It's ours. Our faithfulness needs renewal 
all the time. The question seems to be something more like whether we'll remove ourselves from among the faithful, not whether we've been removed. The followers of Christ sometimes get this misconceived idea that we're no longer qualified. So Peter is asked the question by Jesus three times, once for every time he denied him. And the real question is not whether the love of God in Christ is sufficient, but whether we will return that love. Because restoration and forgiveness are possible, it only becomes effective in us when we respond to it. So let me illustrate with a story from an applicant from some years ago to seminary. This young woman, I'll call her Carrie, applied to seminary, and in the application she had to write about her church experience, and here's what she wrote. I'm a product of the Bible Belt. In the southeastern communities in which I was raised, we Christians were a far cry from the strangers or resident aliens in the world described in the New Testament. The church instead seemed quite at home with its position awash in the mainstream. And although I'm grateful for the childhood embedded in the traditions and community of the church, there were some pitfalls in such a comfortable religion. When being Christian is synonymous with being like everyone else, there isn't much incentive to take the intellectual or social or spiritual risks which allow faith to grow. So the church I knew sometimes resembled Mrs. Mays of Flannery O'Connor's short story, Greenleaf, who, quote, was a good Christian woman with a large respect for religion, although she did not, of course, believe any of it was true. The student, Carrie, writes, I think if we had really believed it was true, if we had really taken it seriously, it would have been both harder and better. End quote. Now here's a promising student, if you ask me, preparing for ministry. She understands that sometimes life is going to get harder before it gets better. And sometimes our faith calls us to hard things. Sometimes we have to take risks to be able to grow. It happened to Peter. He emerged from this encounter with Christ chastened, humbled, but also renewed and remarkably effective. No longer was he engaged in aimless, empty activity. He had a renewed sense of call to service, and he had a reawakened sense of purpose and the power of faith. Do you love me? Each of us will have to answer that question from our Lord, and if our answer is like Peter's, yes, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Then we also will hear Christ's response, then feed my sheep. 
In other words, embrace with renewed commitment the task that's laid out before you to be a conduit of God's love, a conduit of God's love in Christ for those most in need. Carrie went on to describe her own spiritual awakening with these words. Discouraged by some bitter political struggles, my family left the church during my last year of high school. And after college, I found myself with the option of either the church or nothing, and the church won. And what I found was one of the happiest surprises of my life. Although some of my old frustrations with the church as a place to belong still persist, I have to confess, however, that my joy in the life of the church has less to do with the change in it than with a change in me. These years in the real world have been nothing if not humbling. And this increased awareness of my own inadequacies has allowed me to see the flaws of the church with greater understanding and with a great sense of humor. And I have realized this side of heaven flawed people are the only kind available and that flawed people working together for Christ sure beats flawed people on their own the Holy Spirit has renewed my mind and heart to receive the mysteries of the sacraments the renewed the beauty of the hymns and the liturgy and the richness of the word proclaimed with a depth and a power that I'm much less able to explain than to simply be thankful for. End quote. You know, I think Peter might have written something like that. People of faith are always discovering to their joyous surprise that they can be humbled by life and emerge from the experience more alive and vibrant than they ever were before with a task to undertake, a holy mission to embrace. It's different than aimless, empty living. So don't ever let your past determine your present. Let your future direct who you will become. Don't be defined by your worst moments in life. Be defined by your best possibilities. Forgiveness is giving up the hope of a better past. And every week in worship, we say it right here during our assurance of pardon. Friends, believe the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. There's remarkable power in that. Chastened and humbled believers are the best kind. They're the most effective. It's time for all of us, I think, like Peter, to say, Lord, you know everything. You know that we love you. So that we can again hear that command, then feed my sheep. Every restoration 
is also a recommissioning. They're inseparable. Restoration begins with each one of us, but it doesn't remain there. This encounter for Peter was not simply for his own spiritual edification. He was restored and he was recommissioned for the sake of the entire community. And we miss the point if we think God's only interested in our individual lives and their fulfillment. God is restoring the entire creation and he intends to use us as a part of that process. So let me conclude. This weekend we remember it was 30 years ago that the Berlin Wall was dismantled. That symbol of division in the Iron Curtain was removed. And Germany was eventually reunified. It wasn't easy, and it certainly wasn't inexpensive. But it was a new beginning. And it leads to a different future. So what new beginning does God intend for you, and how will you respond? What walls are you prepared to dismantle? You and I have plenty of work to do together to feed the Lord's sheep. And we live in this time of increasing polarization and incivility. The, the environment around us, both literally and figuratively, is strained. What better time for a reawakening and a time to leave our aimless fishing expeditions for something much more important? So let's get to it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.